One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Remember me from 2019? <laughs> this is What Women Want with Amy Annette. Hi, friends. I've been a silly little goose since the last upload of What Women Want. Uh, if you, like me, understand silly little goose to mean depressed. I'm still a little bit uh, loosey-goosey, but aren't we all with a silly little goose gang? But I came to the realisation the other day that the many, many, many brilliant people who had lent me their time, thoughts and funny humours uh, means that I am behoved, um, I'm behooved, um, I am behooveth to share the shows that I recorded for What Women Want over the years that I haven't released. Um, some are live shows, some are lockdown Zoom records, and one or two are me just using the show as an excuse to hang out with some people that I very much admire. No one has said anything they wouldn't say today, but uh, do remember when listening that some of these are a few years old and things have changed. You know, Lizzo was sort of maybe not cancelled yet. I think I said this on the first What Women Want, but I'll say it again and with even more gusto, but with sadness that we still need to say this. For here at What Women Want HQ, when we say women, we are unequivocally including trans women. We are also still very much Helen Hunt stands. Helen, we love you. Please come do a show. Today, I'm sharing this conversation that I have with some truly amazing people in uh, 2020. If you can believe it. Uh, I know it's 2020 because we are talking with some great excitement about the hot new film Parasite. But all the other observations from Desiree Birch, Candice Carty-Williams and Nish Kumar are frankly timeless. This was recorded live at a Penguin event at the Barbican. Mm. We more than met its brutalist excellence with our own goofy excellence. We talked about storytelling and listening back now, I find it sort of hard to even forgive myself for keeping the genius of these three off the um, air cloud. I've left in a reference to Storm Dennis at the very top, just so you really know it is 2020. I think you'll enjoy this. Desiree, Nish and Candice are some of the smartest people. I loved talking to them about storytelling. Oh, do be aware that um, this starts with me in full MC mode, bringing the guests onto stage. So there's going to be a real vibe shift in a second. Uh, adjust your earphone pods. I don't know who you are, you young people with your technology. Just adjust your volume settings if that's going to be a struggle for you. Um, okay, enjoy the show. Please join me in welcome to the stage, the wonderful Nish Kumar! <laughs> Hello. Uh, you braved Storm Dennis. Is that what this is? This is Storm Dennis. Mm. Yeah. It's been a lot. I just got into town a week ago. You guys have had a lot of storms. Lot of What's storms. with all the weather, UK? What's up? <laughs> I think you just come from California. Yeah, I know. What's with the weather? <laughs> you okay with Storm Dennis? Fine, thank you. Yeah. Good. Right. <laughs> 
Storm, Storm Dennis. Dennis blew my cap off and my jacket inflated, so I looked like Bugs Bunny. Uh, but apart from that... The- Apparently, storms with female names often have higher casualties because people take them. Because women less be serious. crazy. <laughs> no, because people take them less seriously. Yeah, well. so people are like, Ellen, I'm all right. <laughs> Let me get my tea. <laughs> yeah, you think after Katrina, no one would ever do that ever again? Yeah. No. Yeah. No. I think more academic papers should feature the phrase "because women be crazy." <laughs> right. Each show we do a different misconception. This show we're doing uh, what women want is to tell stories. So the idea is that we're going to be looking at storytelling and storytellers and the political and personal ramifications of telling your own story or hearing someone tell your story. I also just want to say this is the beginning of a conversation, so you might not hear something that you feel heard on this stage, and that's totally fine and totally uh, understandable, and I hope that you see this as the beginning of a conversation rather than a totally comprehensive one. Let's begin the show. So when I was thinking about uh, storytelling being the topic, I was thinking this, what storytelling is, is, is powerful. It's power. You know, it's joyful. It can be repressive. It's so many things. It's about who gets to tell your story and do you have a say in that? What does it feel like to be a storyteller? What does it mean when suddenly people are listening to you after years of being trying to sort of shout out and be heard. I also really want to think about the gatekeepers to storytelling, like who still makes those decisions? Are we seeing change in the right way? And mostly I just want to hear about like what it means to you to tell stories. Like what an exciting, powerful, privileged place to be. Um, and I just want to hear you guys share. So thank you so much for being here. Um, and Desiree, when you heard that the topic was what women want is to tell stories, what did you think? I was like, I don't know. Uh, no, because I think the uh, essential premise of that is true. I think that women do want to be able to have the mic. I mean, not all women, but, you know, I think a lot of them are like, it is time for us to be able to speak back because so much of what we are perceived as being and what our energy is or whatever is receptive. I, I thought um, I brought this thing up uh, about comedy a little while ago about how sick I am of hearing, you know, people go like, oh, all the female comics are so dirty and all this other Mm. stuff and you know I mean I'm a dirty comic but you have to understand that like people are thrusting dicks and sexuality at us for the longest time Mm. and we don't get a chance to speak or even be ourselves outside of that uh, sort of gaze or expectation or that storyline so when we spit it back at you don't be offended just go this is what we have received as Mm. you know once we get this out enough and you're still listening to us we can talk about all the other delicate lovely things that you expect that we are but Mm. also we are this and you know there is a need sometimes to shout yes I am also this thing too and like I'm not going to hide the stuff that I've had to imbibe my entire life Mm. Um, I you know have been a storyteller in one form or another as a stand up and as a solo performer performer for over half my life now, you know, mm-hmm. so I consider myself a storyteller. But what has come out of maybe the past decade of doing that is understanding the double edged sword of storytelling, right? Mm-hmm. Because storytelling is a means of control, right? If you are the narrator, you control the narrative, no matter what the perspectives are in any given event. If you are the one with the microphone telling it, you are showing your perspective on it. And everyone else goes like, wow, you're so right. Not realizing that that wasn't fully objective. But at the same time, stories are the things that we tell ourselves about who we are mm-hmm. that keep us trapped in certain modalities and patterns of behavior. Um, and it's very 
very easy to get stuck to your story in this lifetime and find yourself in this rut of being like, why can't I change? But like letting go of that sort of I am this thing is Mm -hmm. usually the beginning of that change or that evolution. So I feel like whether we do that on an individual level or on a communal level, those stories that we tell ourselves about who we are as a society even can be quite limiting at times and keep us from progressing when every when the flower is really trying to open and we've got a skin on it still. So, you know, I think that from my experience being, you know, whatever black female, you know, person of size, all this other stuff, I have had different perspectives on things and other people. And we've come into a time where more people are thirsty for those stories because Mm -hmm. that reflects them as well. And they have not heard those stories either. And I think that is really important and healing and everyone needs to feel like they belong in a world and a society. And for most of us, a lot of the problems stem from the fact that we don't feel like we belong anywhere under the sun. So it's important important for those stories to be told and put out in the ways that fit, you know, like you can't just do it in the traditional, like, you know, Joseph Campbell way all the time, because maybe that doesn't fit your experience and your perspective. And, you know, sometimes you got to go blah. And like, I think that it's cool that sometimes when I see shows or read books, they're not in the same thing that I've come to understand as a classical structure for things. Mm. And I think that that's important to start questioning what are feminist structures for things, as opposed to even just the content themselves. But, um, Uh, or itself. But um, yeah, so I it's I am a big advocate for storytelling, even though I know it is a means of control. And I am someone who is trying to learn how to relinquish so much of a need for control over Mm. everything. So like when you said, what is it like to tell stories? I'm like, I don't surf, but it feels like surfing. It Mm. feels like there is a wave of expectation and attention and whatever else growing. And it is coming for me and I better ride this or it's going to crush me. And so, you know, I get on stage and there's adrenaline because I'm like, I got to ride this wave. And when you ride it, you feel feel like nothing can stop you you right and when it slams down on you you're like taxi you know like, yeah, i gotta get out of here <laughs> Sam, oh Aaron. thanks that's amazing <laughs> okay um i love that your answer started with dicks in my face and at one point you said modality and i was like this chick is smart <laughs> also women be crazy yeah <laughs> Very much the unheard tagline to my podcast. No, that's so interesting. And I really want to come back to as well the idea of um, when you are retelling your own stories and you realize they're negative, like how can you get out of that? But before that, Candy, when you heard that the subject was what women want is to tell stories, what did you think? So I I am a storyteller by nature and by volition. That's another big word for you. So (laughs) trying to catch up with Desiree. Um, uh, So I I wrote a novel called Queenie and I wrote it because I was like, okay, well, where's the representation for someone like me? Mm. Um, And that's what I'd been missing my whole life. And I think, as Desiree said, it was like always trying to find myself in media and in books and never finding myself. So always trying to fit into different characters. Mm. So always trying to be like, sassy or like really sexy or really like you know something you know just like aggressive as armor and Mm. so I was doing all of those things and I was like oh but that's not really me because I'm actually quite shy Mm. and so I thought oh so I actually so I found that really really hard and I was like okay well maybe go and write something because like you can't be the only person who feels like this and so it really did stem from me being like I would love to be able to see myself or see someone like me or just see loads of different black women because the book has like seven main black women in there Mm. Um, and I wanted these women to contain multitudes and just be different versions of what people say that we are Um, and so that was really exciting to me but also in terms of storytelling I'm a a writer so I like to hide in my bed Mm. 
and write. And so then when people are like, now get on the stage and talk about it, that's a challenge. Mm. Um, but it's a welcome one. Um, because it's really interesting because you do end up like wanting to share why you did this. And it's about talking to people and being like, what did you get from this work? Um, because that's, I guess, storytelling for me is an exchange in that way. Because I get to like say like a version of like different truths in story to people, and then have them say to me like, "What does that mean?" Or like, "This is how I felt about this." Mm. Um, and you know, I've learned a lot from my readers. Um, one reader did say to me that she hated my book so much she'd never read a book again. Okay. <laughs> what, um, she never read creating. a book. <laughs> a, she wouldn't read a book <laughs> again. She's not reading signs. She's no, reading nothing at all. But I quite liked that because I was like, well, that's there's an energy there. Yeah, you know? there's an energy. So that's something. <laughs> and so you know, so you know, it's good to hear. It's good to get feedback um, in that way. You know, I've got a thick, got a thick skin, so that's nice. Wow. But yeah, so storytelling. But I think storytelling to me is definitely just like an exchange of, of stuff I think that's really great even if it's uh, hate yes <laughs> yeah yes. Um, yeah that's really interesting as well to hear about how you put something that's sort of whole and you know you proofread it and you chose the cover and you but you, you can't control what the response is going to be obviously it's been an amazingly positive response to your book and I think no <laughs> okay in, in ways yeah. I loved it <laughs> I loved it and I think I feel it would be really interesting for us to come back to this, like the power that you take when you take the mic, but then the sort of really the power is always with the audience. Um, thank you, Candice. That's great. Um, Nish, when you saw it was uh, storytelling, what did that make you think? Uh, it made me, first of all, what it, I, lo- I love listening to everything everyone said, but it does remind me of why one of the reasons I like comedy, because obviously if you enjoy something comedically you can laugh whereas when I was listening to you guys I just had this urge to be like yes mm. <laughs> but it's, it's not really socially acceptable to just shout that is perceptive <laughs> <laughs> even though that's what I wanted to do um, I for some reason when I read it it didn't occur to me that I was the storyteller in the question mm. because I don't think I view my job as storytelling even though I guess it is technically I don't really understand I don't know what my job is anymore <laughs> I, I think if you search my name on the internet my job is upsetting white people <laughs> <laughs> I seem to have managed to monetize that somehow like I've I've converted white tears into currency and <laughs> the exchange rate is good <laughs> but I thought of it as someone who is a fan of Storytelling, and who is a fan of films, and who is a fan of books, and who is a fan of TV shows, and it made me think that one of the things that I think has happened in my life is that the uh, the richness of the stories that are available to me as a fan of storytelling has increased mm. in my lifetime. You know, I, I, I think that um, you know, I, I think that when you want, when you're trying to draw the sort of collective canon. You want to feel like you're drawing the best possible storytellers. And if that group that you're drawing from is only one specific group in society, you might be missing out on a whole range of stories uh, that you haven't been able to experience. And I think one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last 20 years is the sort of, I guess, the democratisation of stories and the fact that we're hearing more stories from people of colour and more stories from women and more stories from the LGBT community. Like, it's it, it, to me, that is 
enriching our cultural pantheon. Mm. Um, and I think that that's a really good and a really exciting thing. I, I can't conceive of a time in my childhood when people would have been so excited about a movie like Parasite, you know, that isn't in English and comes from a completely alien world and yet is such, has such universal themes behind it. But I can't, I can't remember a film when I was growing up that was like a foreign language movie that would be doing this much box office or uh, winning Best Picture at the Oscars. And that, to me, is really exciting. The fact that we're drawing from so many more varied groups in society is really exciting. And I think one of the reasons that's happening is because, I mean, as much as we all dislike social media, there is an increased... It has given voice and given people the tool to tell stories and shown the appetite that exists out there for them. So that, I think, is really exciting and really encouraging. And the only thing that I would say from a personal perspective is I do think that sometimes you feel a responsibility if you are from anything other than the absolute mainstream group. You, you have this weird relationship mm. where you feel responsible for your community story and telling that story. And I don't know that that's a good thing because that's... It, it, in principle, I think that that's great, but in practice, what that leads to is me going on question time, which <laughs> I, I, like, <laughs> I don't think is good for anyone. It's not good for me. It's not good for you. It's not good for the Asian community. <laughs> but that it is that I, I'm really interested to hear what everybody else thinks about the kind of weird responsibility that you feel to tell stories if you're from a group that isn't part of the or hasn't traditionally been part of the sort of cultural default mm. i think that that's that's really interesting but mainly i thought this is a really exciting time to be a fan of storytelling that there's lots of really interesting writing going on lots of really interesting movies and lots of really different types of comedy and comedians coming in and the more groups you draw from the more likely you are to get the absolute best and most interesting stories thank you nish really good i mean you didn't say dicks or modalities but i did think it was a good it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. <laughs> I think it's really interesting to think about parasites. We, we're in this time where people are 
but you almost see in the response to the success of Parasite some like real cack-handed whiteness, like the people interviewing the various cast members, mistaking who they're talking to, the fact that none of the cast were nominated mm, for yes, acting yeah, yeah, yeah. roles, mm. but the film... So, and I think the same thing happened with Slumdog Millionaire. Just, it is an interesting thing that even as these stories break out, it does... And the excellence of them is part of the reason that they do. It does sort of show that there's still so much resistance to the... Like, they have to work so hard to break through. Oh, yeah, and also the big reason we keep celebrating things like Parasite is because we keep losing elections. Sure. And this is pretty much all we've got. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that's very true. That's very true. Thinking about being fans of storytelling and thinking about what books you read or stories you heard as a child and when you... Did you ever, or what was it like when you first, you know, found yourself in a book, or when did you first start to think about storytelling in an active way? For example, for me, Harriet the Spy. Um, <laughs> she's wearing dungarees 24-7, and she's quite rude. And I really <laughs> remember reading that as a child and being like, okay, rude girls get books written about them. Very nice. <laughs> Do you remember finding yourself in a story? I wish that I could say that I fully found myself in a story, particularly at a young age. Like, I think, you know, when I was a kid, I liked, like, Encyclopedia Brown. Because, like, mm. he's smart in that book, you know? And then I got a little bit older, and I discovered, like, some Zora Neale Hurston and stuff. And I was like, oh, there's black women. Cool. Mm. And it, like, wasn't until I read, like, Dietland three years ago that there was a fat person that was at a center of anything, like, mm. that could be part of a story. So I feel like I've been collecting bits and pieces of myself that I've been picking up from various stories. Because, you know, it, it does take a while. I you think that I read so much like classical and popular literature that did not feature me that I just presumed that life was a thing that these people lived and that if I could get closer to being like these people I might get to live mm. and it's so weird to like finally be like oh yeah, I'm going to make my own stories and try to live through those and hopefully other people can reference those things yes. for their sense of living or life or self uh, in the future because I didn't get those until much later. Yeah I mean Candice that's basically what you were saying talking about why you wanted to right Queenie mm -hmm. and you're talking about sort of books that maybe said like you want to be sassy or whatever it is but you couldn't find the whole self I know you work in publishing as well I used to I used, used to, to. Work in publishing. Mm. so congratulations thank you yes uh, full time so, writer yeah <laughs> so what's it like to work also in an industry where you're surrounded by stories but you maybe don't see yourself it was really hard I find it really hard and that's why I wrote I think I was like because I've got to because I'm seeing that there's nothing coming in either mm. and I'm seeing that editors are basically like it's not really to my taste mm. and so then these books just never got published and I was like well that's awful um mm -hmm. and so that's why I decided to write but also in terms of my reading I grew up reading lots of Mallory Blackman like over and over again which mm. is great uh Noughts and Crosses I was like I'm yes. desperate to like be in that world not because I wanted that to, you know you know what I mean um, but also then when I got older I was like okay well what is there for me now like in this middling age I remember having to read the classics mm. all the time and I remember weirdly finding myself or like looking for myself like desperately and like finding myself weirdly in Heathcliff Mm. because I was like he's described as like an outsider he's described as like having dark features and also he's quite moody mm -hmm. and so I was like that's yeah. like yeah. but like how weird that that's the person in a classic that I could find myself in like it's really bleak because we had to read so, we had to read so much but I never also just I never found myself in like 
feminine characters mm. because I was like, there is right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because like the idea of like blackness and like being a bigger black woman was like that wasn't feminine. So mm. I was just always like, okay, am I masculine then? I mm. think. Or, so I think I just yeah. always like. Well, the male characters way. get to have a full range of emotions that yeah. you're like, oh, I feel that, and I hold those things in, and I suffer with that, and so I guess I'm like him. Yeah, you know. Mm. And it's just about what you see to let you go. Oh, you could also be like her if we actually showed her as a subject and not an object. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think that also comes into the conversation around literature, which is often when men write, they, it's considered to be the human existence that they're talking to. When women write, it's the experience of being a woman. And I know that there's statistics that show that like, traditionally men don't read books by women, whereas women read books by all genders. When you were reading Nish as a child and still now, like, do, you, do you look for yourself? Do you even try to? Um, I, I guess when I was growing up, there were a couple of pretty massive... I quote unquote Indian books. So the things like A Suitable Boy came out uh, when I was a kid. I also read a book when I was 11 years old. I read a book by Salman Rushdie because I'm unbearable. <laughs> <laughs> but it's actually like, it's actually, his, <laughs> he wrote a children's book called Haroon and the Sea of Stories, mm. which, was a, he, he, which was a story he used to tell his. Um, his son, and it was around the time, the sort of bio, biographical elements to it are quite interesting because he was under the fatwa, and so he wrote this story about a magical land where people are trying to suppress stories, and he would tell his son this story, and he ended up writing it as a book because if you've got kids, you've got to try and make some extra cheddar on the side. Like, <laughs> but it, I read in the series story is such an interesting thing because it's a sort of, it's a remix of Eastern and, Eastern and Western myth, and so it's a kind of hodgepodge of the Arabian Nights, um, Bollywood cinema, and and The Wizard of Oz, mm. and I, I remember reading it thinking this is, this is absolutely wild. I've, I've never read anything like this in my entire life. And also, and I've said this ad nauseum, I wouldn't be a comedian if it wasn't for goodness gracious me, which mm. is a British Asian sketch show that aired in uh, the late nineties. And I have on many occasions said that if you don't like what I do, it's their fault (laughs) (laughs) but that was a really that was a really like you know we were like given permission my parents were like we're staying up because some Indians are on TV like Mm. when we were kids if there was an Indian on TV my mum would go everyone come (laughs) 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 everyone come (laughs) in the kitchen (laughs) Indian on TV like and so you'd all just run and be like ooh (laughs) cool Do you feel like when you're writing stories or you're telling stand-up or you're making your plays, making your plays... I don't... I'm not in the theatre world. <laughs> when you're making your plays, Desiree, no, when you're curating your solo work, um, do, you, do you feel like it has to be personal for people to listen? So often it has to be like your trauma or your grief is the thing that people want to hear from you. I just want to know if that's something you've engaged with or come up against or feel like you want to tell your personal story but you don't want it to feel like it's on their terms I think there is something to be said for like black stories and trauma and I think I mean I know that most of the black stories that we have have been allowed to come through are slave stories Mm. and I find that really hard because it's like we have much we have a much richer existence we have so much trauma from various points in history (laughs) right (laughs) but I think like you know I think the thing that the books that we see go through and like the films that get made like the leading narrative is I mean like I I think if you saw the Oscar nominations the only nomination a woman of colour had was Cynthia Erivo for playing Harriet Tubman Mm. and everyone else has been discounted and so I think like that has been like such a huge thing but I think that we also have this thing where we understand that when a woman 
or a woman of colour tells her stories, it's just her personal story mm. because we have had such a traumatic existence that we've dredged up to um, make money. Um, and I find that quite hard. I, find, I just find it really interesting. Mm. I went to see a, a film the other day uh, called Rocks. It's absolutely amazing. And it's written by this black girl called Teresa Ikoko. And it's about a young black girl who uh, her mum is not well, so leaves her to look after her little brother. And she's 15 in school. She's got to navigate that. And at no point did I think it was her life story. But mm. I saw so many people who were like, this must be what mm. she went through. And I think it's just that, that, that immediate understanding that like, if we are able to tell stories, then it's because we're dredging up our own pain almost saying like there's no way you could have come up with this yeah i have to say quite often that i am not queenie i have an imagination yeah that i have used yeah to write yeah this book and i think my counter is always like because obviously ian McEwen wrote a book about a fetus and i'm always like is he McEwen a fetus? Um, and that's my clap back every good. time. Thank you. Yeah. Um, he was once. He so, was, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, lived experience. I appreciate that. Yeah. 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 Um, McEwen was writing in the womb. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, it's odd because uh, coming from the place of being a solo performer, I have based most of my work on personal experience that I then expand to be about, you know, all of us, because as a theater maker, performer, comedian, whatever, you know, the great trick is the more specific you get, the more universal a thing becomes, Mm. right? The more that you mine, whether or not it's trauma, the more you mine the thing that you know the best, which if you are on the sidelines of life or if you're paying attention to yourself is yourself and everything going on in this ecosystem. Mm. If you start going into that, the more people from diverse backgrounds, experiences, you know, uh, cultures can understand what you're talking about. So it is sort of like a, a, a shortcut to a translation device for like there's something in me that I'm trying to transmit to you because that is the essence of storytelling mm. and so the more detailed I get the better I can do that and while I have an imagination like I do also just I'm like oh I got this shit that isn't doing any good until I get it the hell out there and you know I, I think as um, I, I this may be pervasive throughout the arts what I know is being uh, a theater maker actor writer comedian right Mm -hmm. and I feel like um for me there's always needed to be uh, a quid pro quo to say something for my country of late like I need to be giving something and I need to be getting something in order for anyone to show up to this fucking room and sit here for an hour to an hour and a half and give a fuck right Mm -hmm. so like if I'm doing a show I need to know that I I feel that I am giving somebody something that they maybe didn't have before or that they needed more of and I need to be getting something by releasing this story because at a certain point after telling a story enough I'm like I think I can stop with that one or at least you know that version of whatever I'm talking about and move on and so because of that I think my stories have tended to be more personal and just these sort of aesthetics that I learned in making theater and maybe the era in which I grew up I think that they're starting to like I'm starting to expand to things that are a little bit more like oh social commentary and this and that because I've told quite a few of my stories and now I'm just like scratching like is this anything is this (laughs) is this a story like I don't know you know so at some point you do have to expand I think you do start with a thing that you know the best And also there's like a vacuum for stories like Mm. mine because they haven't been around. There aren't enough of them to have populated the field as well as, you know, as well as other kinds of stories. And so I feel the presence of that vacuum and I'm like, oh, there's space for me to say all this shit now. Let me get it all out. You know? Mm. Yeah. 
as long as maybe you feel like it's on your terms that you're sharing this whatever story that you're sharing Nish when you are crafting your Edinburgh hours I've seen all your shows and I've seen you go from talking about more personal stories and telling stories of things you've gone through Mm. making them funny to now feeling confident maybe to make political comment and think about the world in a bigger way and what's that journey been like for you yeah that's there's almost a more boring answer to that and some of that is just um when i when you start writing the only thing you really feel comfortable with is when you start when i started writing stand-up the only things I felt comfortable talking about were things that I had literally lived through. Mm. And so, you know, it, that was really... I always wanted to do political comedy because, you know, my stand-up heroes were Chris Rock and Richard Pryor and I loved Jon Stewart. And this, they, they, those were the people that I really wanted to try and emulate. But just from a, a, from a sort of mechanical level... You don't have the tools when you start, you know, and uh, you often you have to build up a skill set and then you can evolve towards making outward. uh, It's exactly what you said, Desiree, in terms of like you suddenly you slowly feel confident enough to go, I have the tools to make jokes and build humor. So now I can use that into more abstract conceptual ideas rather than constantly having to you know, get on the night bus just to try and fill half an hour. <laughs> you know, like... Very it, much it, your first show. Yeah, very much. Very, it, a lot yeah. of comedian shows, if they live in London, the first hour is things I saw on the night bus. Right? Yeah. <laughs> is re- writing that show a form of self-harm? Just <laughs> yeah. putting yourself on another night bus? I guess now, Night Tube, you know... The Night Tube has really has done more damage to comedy than anything <laughs> I have done. Um, but yeah, it's. I think you. I just had to build a confidence and a toolkit in order to be comfortable saying observations or external uh, thoughts about the world and making them funny. That was, for me, was totally... But also uh, being more personal, I mean. So we tell stories of being on the night bus, you know, more universal. You're looking to share universality, whereas I feel like as you sort of maybe gain confidence, you're able to share things that maybe would feel too personal. Yeah, I'm much more... Yeah, I definitely got more comfortable... I think also you you get more comfortable. You sort of you when you start, you're so desperate, especially as like a young male comedian. When you start, you go through this phase of like just the you know, basically saying all the worst things <laughs> and trying to make jokes about the worst things. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so then the next phase of your development is then to try and work out how to say something that's actually funny. Mm-hmm. And as you become more comfortable, again, with just the mechanics of joke writing, you start to be able to present yourself in a more complicated, three-dimensional way. I think the first sort of four or five years, everyone's stand-up persona is a sort of caricature mm-hmm. that's quite flat. And hopefully as you go along, you start to evolve and be able to talk about the other aspects of your character. Everyone works so hard to be in a position to be heard. What's it like when you get there? Like, what does it feel like when you've locked on so many doors, but now people just like opening doors left, right and centre, being like, come on in. That was a door analogy that I took too far. I'm so sorry about that. Ring the doorbell. It's a Ringo. Hello. So, yeah, so do you feel like... You talked about maybe talking about being the burden. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. I I just... I felt... I feel in the current political climate... Also, I mean, I'm absolutely in that world. Like, I talk about politics on stage. And so I feel that I have some responsibility 
I don't think this is a responsibility of anyone who works in the arts. I certainly don't think it's a responsibility of any comedian. But I'm already neck deep in this nonsense. Mm. And so I feel a responsibility to um, r- represent my community in some way. You know, even if that's just turning up and looking like an ass on question time. Just because I think, like, you, you sort of... It, with everything that's going on and everything that's been happening in the last decade there's no way that I can dip my toe into the waters like I can't do a bit of politics and then go oh, no that's too much <laughs> I, like I'm 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 sort of I'm in it now mm. and that, that's that's where I'm at with it I guess it's responsibility versus onus because mm, sure. you just don't feel like it's I, I mean I'm not I'm very political in my thoughts and like a sort of activist in my writing and my ways but I'm not a Twitter person mm. about that sort of thing because it's just scary, oh God. you know. You know, like firsthand. <laughs> but you know, so I think that I think that's a really, really hard thing. But I do, I do feel a responsibility to represent myself and myself up. And on the event side, I go to a lot of events, even if they're like really far away, or I think there's going to be like seven people there because I think if there is someone like me in the audience and she needs to kind of see that I can do this or mm. like be in that position, then I'm happy to do that. Um, but I think it's really, I think just representing yourself is an act. You know, and mm. I think like doing it in the best way that you want to do that is really important. And I don't think that has anything to do with like being perfect or being like the smartest or mm. being like the most interesting. I think it's just about like, I guess when you get to the point of being able to be your most, your, I guess your truest self mm. and your most comfortable self, then that's important. And I think that's incredibly political. Some of the reading I was doing around this about storytelling is about how feminism used to be the place where people could hear another story about being a woman. I feel really strongly that we have this thing with mainstream feminism now where it used to be that feminism could potentially be this place where you could find this other story another way of living or at least find yourself within it but mainstream feminism and when I say mainstream feminism I'm basically talking about lean in okay I'm talking about corporate feminism and this way that feminism has become like a life hack and it's it's almost as if someone just walked in and was like guys sorry I'm going to do an American accent I hope you don't mind go for okay, it okay thank you so much um, and also when you need to be annoying you know how to do it well <laughs> Oh, it's, it's not not why I was going to do it, guys. <laughs> seriously, guys. Also, I'm wearing uh, I'm wearing a Britney mic, like a Madonna mic, and so it feels very much like I should be like, ladies. Okay, <laughs> it turns out all this time, all you needed to do was just be more confident. <laughs> just be more confident. The problem all this time was you. Yeah. <laughs> like to me, like corporate feminism has like athleisure and like these sort of perfect lifestyles on Instagram. People think they can be perfect. Like people think they can be a CEO and still get time, time at home to wash the kids. I mean, wash the kids. I don't have kids. <laughs> wash wash those kids. kids. <laughs> <laughs> the thing I love, washing my kids. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Put them to sleep, wash your kids. Lovely stuff. Yeah, I can have it all. <laughs> um, and I feel like it's harder and harder now to find a version of feminism that speaks to the sort of multitudes of women and isn't instead saying like don't worry guys feminism is just another way for you to be more of a man than the next man like lean in don't lie down which is what 
I want to write the book. Yeah. <laughs> it's called Lie Down, Tune Out. Yeah. <laughs> take a little break. Um, You've worked hard enough. You've done a lot to get here. But some of the stuff that they say in these, like the lean-in things and, and the sort of the hints and the tips and the tricks, even when I was looking at storytelling, they start by being this amazing thing, being like storytelling is about being vulnerable, it's about being honest. And then the next paragraph was like, and that's a great way as a leader to make people believe in your brand. Oh. You know, it's so like everything is getting co-opted. Yeah. It's not something that you see and interact I think whether or not you recognize it, you do come up against it all the time. I am going to slightly veer off of this because I realized there was something I wanted to say about before, but maybe it ties in because we're all talking about you know the what? same thing. Let's put a pin in it. Uh, come yep, back. we're going to come back. No, I just we were speaking about the the sort of um, the burden, the responsibility, the you know telling a story on your own terms. It's just like a sticky idea to me because is there how much can you as a storyteller do that? Because the nature of storytelling requires an audience of some form, right? Whether or not you write it and you're separate from the audience or you write it and then you deliver it to the audience, right? You need them to receive it in order for it to be a story and you have to be a storyteller. And so, so much of what you do as a comedian or a storyteller is framed by what the audience is responding to and not, right? Mm -hmm. And then on the other hand, I realize that so much of my work is personal because when you are a body that has a lot projected onto it, Mm -hmm. your first mission tends to be like, let me tell you what the actual story is because I mean I think we've all had that experience of feeling the weight of someone's eyes and feeling what they're projecting onto you and being like no that's not it and I can see what you're doing to me and stop fucking doing that thing to me right and so you know that sort of control thing as a storyteller is to be like oh you think that's the story like let me tell you where the real fucking story is right and that's the great thing is that when you are yourself you are doing the best thing you can be doing for your community whatever that community is just to be like we are diverse we are not monolithic like we have lived experiences that are like yours like know that so the next time when you look at someone and want to come up with their story maybe don't make it the same fucking one every time maybe mm-hmm. go like actually let me listen for a second so I just you know the thinking about like where it comes from what the responsibility is like how much you know it's something I question for myself how much my story is framed by what people are laughing at and what they're not because that is my damn job right you know and or you know if I can push it what I can get them to laugh at you know and that makes me feel like I have a little bit more agency or more like okay let's push it somewhere else I've been going through that like I'm 41 what the fuck (laughs) am I doing you know like is any of this like is this what I want to be doing especially now that I have a platform to be doing a little bit more and to be feeling the sort of you know weight of like oh building my brand and whatever and like that's really good but like what is my brand like what you know am I stuck in a certain uh, viewpoint identity idea of myself and is that something that I'm willing to stick with for however much I got left or do I need to shake things up I don't know thanks for riding along with me I hope any of that is useful but I just feel like we're talking about stories and they are these magical wonderful roller coasters that sometimes you're like can I get the fuck off yeah but also I think that circle backs really nicely to trying to think about in everyday life when you come up against the weirdness of, you know, having to be heard in a meeting, what you might need to do. And I think that really speaks to me because I feel like when I work in an office, I'm performing. It's quite subconscious. Yep. But you are always like, if you need to assert yourself, you are doing more thought than I would say my male colleagues have to do to be heard. Like I'm having to position myself, I mean physically position myself so I'm in the conversation and I don't, like I make myself lean on the table so I don't I don't let myself sit back. I would love to think about how when you're telling the story of yourself and you're in an office environment or you're in a traditional environment, how do you control that? How do you not let it sort of overtake you? 
What's your experience mm. being there? I don't think I... When I worked office, I was exactly the same. Mm. I was the only black woman in my office every single office that I worked in. <laughs> and I found that really hard because it would be like, Candice, we've got a black author coming in. Mm. So we're going to pitch. Can you just come and sit in the room? <laughs> and say nothing, but say just nothing. be visible. Say just nothing. be visible yeah, so they sort of trust like, us. Yeah, just sort of be... Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and so I found that really, really hard. And yeah, it was a lot of time. And I think I realised when I was like 28, so a couple of years ago, I was like whoa, I could be doing my work. Instead, I'm just thinking about how I'm coming across, just like mm. in any of these spaces. Like if I've been called into a room to just be black in the room, mm. or I'm like in a meeting and I have to say something about a book on slavery, then it's like, you know, I'm just doing so much like double think. Yeah. And I used to look at a lot of my colleagues, like my white male colleagues specifically, and be like, what must it be like, you mm. know? And like when I did loads of my book stuff, because I was working and writing at the same time, and my book came out when I was working, um, one of my colleagues, there was a Christmas party and there was always like a quiz. And um, someone was like, you know, you have like those fun things, like most likely to X, Y, and Z. Mm. And one of my colleagues was like, no one nominated you because you're such an overachiever. Oh, and yeah. I was like, oh, that's really sad. Because it was yeah. like, I'm just doing what I wanted. Mm. I think a lot of my energy was just spent like carrying myself properly mm. and it's really tiresome um in my school Sad. yearbook i they voted me most likely to be the prime minister's wife <laughs> and i went to a girl's school <laughs> we're coming towards the end of the time so i'd love to end by just asking you what would you like to see in the future in terms of storytelling i don't know i feel like Maybe I'm capitalistically unrealistic when I say, like, I want the gatekeepers to just, like, fucking listen with their ears and, like, open their minds and their hearts a bit. Like, if you find something that you like in a story, like, advocate for it, stand up for it. Like, I just feel like I'm sick of seeing the things that come into prominence just being reduxes of things that we've seen over and over and over again, because that's what anyone, that's what most people are willing to bank money on, ultimately. They're just operating out of fear, and they're like, this is the best way to cover our bases and it's like it, it it satisfies no one equally but I guess like we'll all eat it because it's like the McDonald's fries of mm. you know literature or you know entertainment or whatever it's like well I guess I'll have this but like sometimes you really do want something a little bit like heartier with more roughage or whatever and it's like you know and like people don't know none of these people know what anyone wants until they put something out and then everyone wants it and they're like oh we're all doing stories just like this now and yeah. everybody's really into that and it's like please try to like take the risk a little bit more because no one needs to see Dr. Doolittle again. Yes. Again, again. <laughs> again, again. We get the point. It's a dude, a bunch of fucking animals. Like we got it. Like I just, you know, but there's so many, how many times are you like, I mean, I'm 41 and I'm like, how many times I've said like, like there was the original movie and then there was the musical and then there was a movie based on the musical and now they're doing another musical based on the movie and I'm just like, poof. like yeah. I just, uh, yeah, I don't know. Like listen with your heart, do something new, take a risk, life short, have fun yeah fantastic <laughs> i think for? parasite is a really amazing way of thinking mm. about this because i it is an one of the best films i have seen um but also like some of the like the discourse around it has been wild so like mm. i think that where like people are talking about the fact that like oh it's like why why is it in korean yeah it's like why the fuck wouldn't it be yeah, yeah. doesn't make any sense yeah. like i don't say i don't know what the option is um and so i think like the I think, you know, I'd like to see in my lifetime things change, but I think like it just feels like every industry, like every creative industry, needs a massive rehaul of who is mm. in there mm. because these gatekeepers are so so many of them are the same person, and I think like even if we take like office experiences and transpose that to like all these creative industries if you do have like one person of color who is there how much is their voice being heard mm. and so i think it needs to be 
I mean, it needs to just be, it just, we just need to sort of like be in there in these spaces and like actually calling the shots and having opinions and not just being asked about the opinions about things of people of colour, you know? I yeah. think there is that. So I think there's just a, a lot of work to do. So it feels like a really hard question. Yes. Um, with not like a very positive answer. No. <laughs> um, but, I think it's, I think, but I think it very much is just time and I think awareness. And I think like, it feels like this change that we're seeing is sustainable mm-hmm. uh, because I think people are louder and I think people are demanding change. And I think that even like this podcast existing is a huge thing that mm-hmm. like we did not have before. And also just like for a white woman to be like, that's mm-hmm. you, to be like <laughs> feminism in different forms. Like it should be like an inclusive thing. Like mm-hmm. I haven't, I'm... I'm yet to see that, apart oh from God. here, you know? Thank you. I mean, as a white lady, obviously, all I'm hearing is, yes! <laughs> <laughs> Finally! <laughs> like, sustain- is it sustainable? That's a, such a good word. And I think probably a word that is interesting to come from your experience in publishing, to know what it's like for people to be excited by a trend, mm. but for to call it a trend, yes. essentially. Mm. Yeah. Nesh, what's your sort of hope for well, the future? in terms of... So, like, watching comedy shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, which is pretty much the only subject I'm qualified to talk with any sense of expertise (laughs) on, um, what I would say is being in the audience, if I may praise Desiree in person, but being in the audience at one of Desiree's shows or being in the audience at our friend Rose Matafeo's show and feeling the sense that this is an outstanding show that I'm absolutely loving even though I was not part of its primary audience. Like, Mm. watching your and Rose's shows and seeing young women respond to it and know that that was primarily aimed at them and, like, seeing massive book displays of Queenie in, like, Waterstones and, like, you know, Mm. and realising that these things are... Men will also engage with these things. But seeing art that's, whose primary function was in comedy and in literature, the primary audience was young women mm. and feeling the energy in that room and thinking, oh, this is new. Because particularly in terms of Edinburgh comedy shows, if you're a man and you go and watch Edinburgh comedy shows, you almost don't, you don't, you don't even think to engage with the fact that 90% of it was aimed at you. Like mm. 90% of... And I think it's only in the last couple of years that I have realised the extent to which so much of the comedy I grew up watching... And I, you know, and I sort of grew up through the Edinburgh Fringe. I started going there when I was 20. And so much of what I've seen was like primarily aimed at dudes. And the fact that there is now spaces opening up for amazing comedy... But, but which the way the young women are responding to it, it's like a visceral thing that they relate to what you guys are saying. Mm. And that to me is like, that's exciting. That's a cause for optimism. And that's, and so the gatekeepers can only do so much to block the tidal wave. You know, like things, I, I, I know it, sound, it might sound naive with everything else that's going on, but it's hard for me to sit in those rooms, feel the change that's happened since the first time I went to Edinburgh in 2006 and not feel some cause for optimism. Great, and that's a wonderful place to end. Um, and just as we come to... <laughs> On the man speaking. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you did wait your turn. Yeah. <laughs> and also, I'm going to speak for a good two more minutes. So, um, so we've come to the very end and we always end with a fun question for these guys. So the question that I'd love you to be thinking about is what film you would reboot with a gender reversal, and if you're in it, who are you? 
So when I thought, uh, I, I, I don't know why this has come to me because I, you know, I immediately cast myself in the film of course. <laughs> when I want to play as another gender. And in, in my mind, I'm just kind of like, oh, I want to play like a dirtbag. Like I want to be in a Marlon Brando super fat movie, like mm-hmm. whatever, like latter day, like just like, bah, and like still powerful and everyone's listening to me. But then my mind leapt to um, Dog Day Afternoon, okay. which is Pacino. But like, I like the idea of like, you know, the bank heist and the desperation and the and trying to keep all of these things mm-hmm. from falling apart and like what a woman would do in that situation cast with whoever but I think that would be I, that would something I would totally like to see a reboot of yes. with like a different gender I would like that yeah. too that's nice I would uh, Die Hard mm. is my choice yes um, and Good I'm going to put a fictional character <laughs> as the main character I would choose Annalise Keating from How to Get Away with Murder yes because she can handle anything, mm-hmm. anything. I've been, I've been. This that has been me in that series, like the whole thing for the last like, month. Um, and I would, I would have her as, 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 um, as the lead. That's really good. I Will think it'd be incredible. Be wearing a white vest. Wish wearing a white vest. Um, yeah, and like an amazing selection of wigs. Mm. Like every scene, different wig. Yes, I think that's. <laughs> yeah, Nish. Uh, I mean, there's a part of me that would like to like gender reverse American pie. Mm. I think there's lots of like gross out comedies about young dudes. Mm, And I just, I can't, I'm too old. I've seen too many versions of a young, of five young dudes trying to get laid. Mm. And I think the gender reversal, but then as I say that the stiff, if you gender reverse Stifler's mum to Stifler's dad, it becomes a horror film. Yeah. So in conclusion, gender reverse American Pie, and it's directed by Ari Aster, who made Midsummer. There nice, we go. That's nice. we've, yes, yes. we've gender reversed it, yes. and it's a nightmare now. Yeah. <laughs> no nightmares here, though. Only dreamboats on this day. <laughs> As we come to the end of the show. Pretty good, I Great segue. <laughs> and so please join me, whooping, clapping, and cheering, our wonderful panelists. We had Nish, Candice, and Desiree. Thank you so much. And that's the end of our show. See you later. Goodbye. You just listened to What Women Want with Amy and Hess. And you are now listening to the credits which means you are my kind of person. I personally never finish a podcast before the end. (laughs) I want to distract myself from myself for as long as possible, thank you. This podcast could not exist without the support, both emotional and technical, of Zachary Annette and Emma Corsham. They recorded it and mixed it. I edited it, so I'm sure that explains some things. The music was by The Artisans. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. In return, I hope you always get a double seat to yourself on a train. I've been Amy Annette. Goodbye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.